Father, thank you for gathering us here tonight to worship you, our King of Kings. We know that uh, many from the body that you have built here are traveling and gone this weekend. We ask for your blessings upon them, that you, they would be safe, that they would be brought home safely. We also pray that tonight, Father, as your word is brought to us, that you would speak clearly through my very imperfect and feeble lips to the people that you've gathered here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good evening. Good to have you here tonight, and I uh, hope you're having a happy new year so far in 2020. Uh, I am. I'm doing well. I mean, we're five days in, so, you know, so far so good. Five days, five days, I'll take it. Uh, so we're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 tonight. That is kind of traditionally the text that's associated with this day in the church calendar, which is Epiphany Sunday, and is indeed the reason that we named our church what we did here, Epiphany Church, but more on that in, uh, in a little bit. And so I don't want to say anything else. Let's just go ahead and read it, Epiphany Text for today, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, it reads like this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. End of reading. Well, uh, across the street from the apartment that I lived in here in the city, and that Johannes now lives in, uh, on 16th Street and 3rd, uh, there was a man that lived across the street named Patrick. Uh, it was not uncommon to see Patrick on the street talking with people. As a matter of fact, he was talking with people all the time. Male, female, young, old, black, white, really anyone, Patrick was game to have a conversation. And usually, at some point, Patrick would get, at least it looked like, so into the conversation that he would actually hold on to them. He would hold on to their arm and then he would walk with them where wherever they went. Uh, I've been the recipient of that a few times. I, I have walked Patrick a couple times with him on my arm. Uh, the first time out of the blue as I walked by, Patrick just blurted out, Hey, can you take me to that pizza place on 2nd Avenue and 20th Street? 
which is now closed, by the way. And I was sort of taken aback by his request. Uh, because, you know, people ask you for stuff on the street here all the time, but they don't usually ask to walk with you places. They don't usually ask to be escorted somewhere. And then I realized the reason why Patrick was asking me that, this is the first time I've walked with him, is, is of course Patrick was blind. And so the reason that he was so social is that he needed other people's help around the city to get to anywhere he wanted to go. So if he wanted a good slice, then somebody needed to be there to help him. And he didn't always have people around him to do that. And so he became this very outgoing, gregarious fella around the neighborhood. Well, what would it have been like if Patrick, instead of asking for help, and instead of being guided to wherever he needed to go, what could be the result if Patrick tried to do it on his own? Being that he couldn't see. With all the twists and turns and bumps in the road and all the busyness, it could be very dangerous. It's dark. You could get lost. The Bible says that spiritually, basically, the world is in a state of, of darkness or, or spiritual blindness. They can't naturally from birth. Like, it, we're not born being able to understand and see the things of God clearly. Ever since the first creations fall into sin, everybody's been born with sin, and the result of being born with sin is that we just don't see the world as we ought. And we certainly don't see God the way we're meant to naturally. And that doesn't come from just something out there. We can't simply blame the world for the problem of our spiritual blinders. But Jesus says it comes from within here. In the famous passage in Mark chapter 7, I mean, he basically lists the whole laundry list of sins that one might have. He says, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and sexual morality and theft and murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. As if he hasn't been exhaustive enough. He says, all these things come from within. And that's what ultimately defiles a person. It, it, blinds us. And yet it is into the darkness of this world that our God has come to be the Savior that would bring light to this world that is so lost. That's really what we're beginning to celebrate here in the season of Epiphany. God revealing himself to the world. Going beyond just those you expected, the Israelites everyone. So what do we see from the text happens when Christ is revealed or literally epiphany? That's what you could exchange the word revealed or epiphany to, to the world. What happens? Well, first of all, what happens in this text, and I think still today all the time, is it makes corrupt insiders really nervous whenever the light of Jesus begins to shine into especially new places. Think about what it says in the first couple of verses. The wise men come, say to Herod, hey, we've been reading the stars. They're, they're into astrology, where they're from. 
They've been reading the stars, and the stars have told them, they've given them a sign somehow or another, that there is a baby that's just been born in Bethlehem, and not just any baby, but the king of the Jews. And Herod hears this and goes, what do you mean king of the Jews? You're talking to him, pal, and I intend on staying that way, but he doesn't give it away. He just thinks it. He just thinks it. He gets real nervous, and it says all Jerusalem with him got nervous too, got troubled. Now, why would that be? Well, because they all were pretty darn corrupt. Herod was a known murderer and power-hungry, paranoid man who was always looking over his shoulder, afraid of who would steal his throne. The rest of the leadership of Jerusalem's uh, at that time had been appointed by him, and so they were troubled by this talk of a new king too, because if Herod goes, they go. And on top of this, that the people asking about the new king seemed to be very important dignitaries from other countries, more on them in a little bit. And you can see why, understandably, it makes old Herod nervous. And again, this is just kind of the way it's been throughout history. There's a wonderful account in the book of Acts of what happens when Jesus, when the light of Jesus comes through the apostles preaching to a town called Ephesus. In that town, there was, uh, it was all sort of the whole economy of that town was built around uh, goddess worship. The goddess Diana was worshipped there. There's a large statue. And people, most of the, the workers, the iron and metal workers there, uh, made their living by selling little replicas of the statue of Diana for worshippers that would come from all over the city sort of their, you know, their industry. Well, what happens, the gospel comes, all these people become Christians, and they throw away their, their statues. They don't want them anymore. They're not worshiping Diana anymore. And it, it, it has such an impact on the economy that the metal workers are furious about this, and instead of joining in, they start a riot against this new Christian teaching because when Jesus comes, insiders nervous. We're seeing evidence of that right now. I mean, we, we see it all the time, but there just happens to be a more publicized story coming out of China over the last couple weeks of Pastor Wang Yi, recently sentenced to, to nine years in prison for simply saying that, that communism, the communism that the government practiced, was incompatible with his faith. Nine years. Hard time. Insiders get real nervous when the light of the gospel shines. This is precisely the kind of thing Herod's going to do. In just a few verses after this, which we have not gone over, Herod is going to order that all children, all males under two years old in Bethlehem are slaughtered, just to make sure that there's no threat to his power. And yet, if we're honest, I mean, it's, it's easy for me to sort of pick on the bigwigs of society, you know, the Herods of the world as corrupt and make myself the righteous one in this scheme. But I got to remember when I want to do that, that the Bible pretty clearly says that I have the same propensity to corruption as anybody else. By nature, I'm just as fallen as anybody else. And if you put me in the wrong circumstances, uh, who knows? what any of us are, are capable of. And so I've, I've got I've to read this saying, yes, the insiders get nervous, 
But that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily above them. I mean, listen, it, it doesn't have to be uh, corruption in politics that Jesus shines his light on that makes people nervous. It can be just Jesus shining his light on some sin that I don't want to admit is there. That I want to live in denial about. And it's the same for anybody. When Jesus starts exposing us for who we really are, it's natural to get nervous. And maybe even in a symbolic way, spiritually anyway, to want to snuff out that conviction that we feel when the light shines on us. No, 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 no. Rationalize it away. No, 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 no. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. But deep down, you know, you know. So at the same time as Jesus makes the corrupt insiders feel nervous, he also, he also exalts the powerless. He exalts the powerless. Now the text tells us that, that Herod gathers his cronies that he appointed in religious leadership to find out where this child was to be born, and they get the right place. They quote to him from Micah chapter 5, you know, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the biblical scholars give him the right biblical data to go on. Now this doesn't necessarily, it probably doesn't really mean much to us today when we hear that Bethlehem was the place that Jesus was going to be born. Because we're so used to the Christmas season, we're so used to that, that city being mentioned with that, that it, I think it probably oftentimes seems like a bigger deal to us than it was. But we have to remember Bethlehem was a town of maybe a thousand people tops, most scholars think. Whereas Jerusalem was a town of 600,000 people. If Jesus was going to want to be uh, born in a place, you know, where he get noticed, surely Jerusalem would be it. And yet, he is born in tiny little Bethlehem. And I think part of the reason why is because that's how God chooses to work throughout history most of the time. Over and over and over again. He takes nothings and makes them somethings. He, he, he takes throughout all of the scriptures, so often you have this theology of reversal, where God sees a barren woman and gives her a child. Where God takes the secondborn and exalts him over the firstborn. This is constant throughout Scripture. This is sort of God's way of exalting that which would seem powerless and meaningless and like no big thing. And God still does that today. He does. We see it even in practical ways where, where people that seem to have no chance end up in places that no one would have guessed. Take Alex, for example. Alex was the son of an adulterous relationship between a Scottish man and a French woman who was still married to another man. Early on, his father abandoned him and his brothers. His mother then died from fever just a few years later, leaving Alex and his brothers orphaned. A cousin tapped to serve as the boy's guardian, later committed suicide. I mean, by the, by the looks of it, if anybody looked like their life was not going to turn out to be 
so promising, it would have been Alex's, I think. As a matter of fact, he, when he described his childhood, he would say it was the subject of the most humiliating criticism. And yet, yet Alex was gifted with an incredible intellect, such an impressive intellect that eventually he got a job in an import-export company. And through that work, local businessmen saw how brilliant he was, and so they raised money themselves to send him to Columbia University to study. And from Columbia University, people saw his gifts, and he was eventually serving in roles in finance and in government. Even at one point became the treasurer of the United States. the first treasurer of the United States, because though Alexander Hamilton seemed like he, he had been handed life's losing lottery ticket, God takes nothings and makes them into somethings. That's what God is doing for you. You didn't have anything to bring to the table in this situation. You didn't come to God and he, he didn't say, well, let me see what you got. And he's like, eh, hey, it looks pretty good. I think, uh, I think I can work with that. No. No. God, God's in the business of taking nothings and making them into somethings. Taking nobodies and making them into somebodies. You may not change the world. You may not ever be noticed in some record book somewhere, but no matter how low or insignificant you have ever felt in your life, you must remember God exalts you just as he exalted little, old, tiny Bethlehem by being born there. And that leads to, to my last point. When Jesus reveals himself, yes, the corrupt get nervous, and yes, the lower exalted, that's true, but also the outsider is brought in. The outsider is brought in. That's really what this season of Epiphany is all about. The outsider being brought in the presence of God. God revealing himself and welcoming those who are thought to be excluded and not good enough for religious circles. What I mean is, look at, look at the people that come to the birth, the Magi. They weren't Jewish. They were from the east, most likely, uh, modern-day Iraq or Iran. They probably did not worship the Jewish God. And their astrological and magical practices would have made them hmm, oh so suspect. Uh, that there was probably even some pressure on the writer of this gospel to not include this story. Because the Magi just didn't fit the right picture. I mean, is God, is God endorsing astrolo astrology here? Well, no, I don't think so. But did God use what they were doing in an erring way to get them to see his son? Yeah, I, I think so. Because you see, God's not concerned with, with who we think are the right or most suitable people for him to reveal himself to. It's just not. The whole first part of the story of Jesus, I mean, think about it. Think about the first people Jesus reveals himself to. Shepherds. Angels sing, appear to shepherds in the field. We've talked about that a little bit. I mean, shepherds didn't have, they were uh, nothing. They were unclean, again. And then 
second group of people? These magi from outside of the country. It is this fact that God goes to the outsider, to the person who doesn't seem to fit, to the other, that when we were deciding what name we were going to choose for our church, we chose this name, Epiphany. And why we made our slogan, A Church for Others, because we, we wanted to reveal the light of Jesus to everyone. I just got listening, got done listening to a whole series of podcasts about Dolly Parton, folks. I know I'm just as surprised as you are. Uh, I had no plans of listening to a podcast about Dolly Parton. I'm not particularly a fan of Dolly Parton, although I got to say that Jolene song is pretty poppy. I'll just say that right off the gate, okay? Uh, but but here's the thing. Here's the thing. The show is really interesting. It's called Dolly Parton's America. If you want to look it up. It's really interesting. Uh, it sort of, you know, goes into all of her history and shares the stories behind some of her songs and, and her whole history. I mean, she's been in, in a recording artist now and entertainer for 60 years. So there's a lot of story there. Really fascinating stuff. And, uh, you know, maybe the most interesting episode in the series uh, is the last episode when they talk about Dolly's faith journey. The whole episode's about that. And it's funny because the producers of the show are not religious at all. Uh, it's produced by the same guy who produces Radiolab, Jad Abu uh, Murad. And he, he says, I wasn't even going to bring up faith in this podcast. But then Dolly told me a story. And I have to tell you, it's my favorite story that she's told. Here's the story. Uh, Dolly grew up in the Appalachian Hills of Tennessee. Going to church, of course. It was a Pentecostal, as she called it, Holy Roller Church. I think her grandpa may have even been the preacher there. And all around her every week, I mean, there was hellfire brimstone sermons. There was people getting slain in the spirit. There was people speaking in tongues. There were people proclaiming that God had saved them. And meanwhile, Dolly is sitting there each week looking at all these things going on and not experiencing any of it and thinking to herself, what is wrong with me? What, why does God not give me these things? Maybe I'm not chosen. And so, so she felt scared of God. She didn't feel safe at church. I mean, she had to go, but it wasn't a place that she wanted to be. She was troubled deeply about where she stood with the Lord. But that wasn't the end of the story, of course. Down the hill from Dolly's house, there was an old abandoned church. And according to her, uh, you know, she, she would just go there to kind of sing and to practice singing. And according to her, the way she tells it, by that time, this old house of holiness had become this den of sin. People weren't going there to worship. People only went there to party now. There was graffiti all over the wall, curse words everywhere, dirty pictures on the walls of this church everywhere. So, I mean, it, it looked pretty seedy. The only thing, only sign that there had ever been anything sacred in there was an old beat-down piano with a couple, two, three keys left on it that she would mess around with from time to time. Well, one day, Dolly was feeling quite troubled about her relationship to God, and so... She decided to walk down to this old abandoned church filled with all this profane stuff. And while she entered the church, 
she cried out to God words that had become familiar to her through going to church. She started reciting Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And as she concluded saying these words, Dolly says, For the first time ever, I felt a peace between me and God that I didn't know existed. And suddenly, Dolly ceased seeing God as this terrifying judge that wanted to send her to hell, but saw her as this loving father that wanted to embrace her. And it filled her with joy. She said after that happened, she went skipping home from the church. I'm reminded of something that happened this last week with this, and I, I just I, might, I feel like I should share it now. My, my 96-year-old grandmother died on Thursday evening. She's a godly woman, a great woman, just extraordinarily kind, lived a very long and wonderful life. We got the call that, my parents got the call that she was probably very close to dying that night. And so they rushed to where she was being taken care of. I called my brother. He rushed over there. It was clear when they arrived that she was in the last stages. She was taking the breaths of someone that you can tell is in the process of dying. And so my parents and my brother quickly sat by her. And my brother said a quick prayer over her. He put his hand on her head. He said a quick prayer over her. And he recited that psalm, Psalm 23, as he did. And then he said, Amen. He opened his eyes. And my grandmother got the largest smile on her face. And then she was gone. I think she, I think, I think she had a similar feeling of great peace as she entered into presence of her master. I, I love the picture of how God chooses so often to reveal himself, especially in the Dolly story, right? I mean, just think about the symbolism here of how this all happens. We expect God to, quote, meet us when we clean up our act. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've heard that kind of thing. I'm like, hey, come to church, man. Like, I don't know. I set on fire if I go through the doors of a church. No, man. No, that's not the way this thing goes. You don't get to clean up your act first. God's the one who does the cleaning. You, you just let him do, do this work. No, no, this, this gig works. But in, the way God works is he stoops down to old abandoned churches filled with dirty pictures and curse words to show his mercy to a 12-year-old scared little girl. That's how the God of the universe works. 
This is the God we worship, the God who takes up residence in the hearts of human beings that look all too much like this abandoned church. Though it has the remnants of once reflecting something holy, it has been filled with the profane, as we went over earlier with the statement from Mark's Gospel. Nevertheless, the God we celebrate swoops in to resurrect old abandoned churches and old sin-soiled hearts like mine so that people just like Dolly Parton and you and me can have peace and fellowship with him. This is the way God works. He goes after the outsider, the other. And that's why we exist today, to be a church for others. Because that's the way Jesus works. He goes after the others, the outcasts, the outsiders. Those who were deemed unholy by the religious establishment, he says, follow me. Those deemed thrust by the political class, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. When he comes, he says to the world, God wants you, God includes you, God loves you. In maybe the shortest summation of his mission statement, Jesus says, here's what I'm about. I have come to seek and save the lost. You want to know what I'm about? That's it. He's still about that today. That's what he does. And that's why he's left his church here. So our mission is to do the same. To epiphany. This, this gospel. This Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit. To our friends and neighbors. To our co-workers as we get the opportunity. So that we, we would be church for others, just like Jesus is a God for others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for epiphanying yourself to us. Thank you that though we have so often walked in darkness, we have not been forced to stay there. Pray now, Father, that again, as we come to the table to receive your gifts at the supper, that, that you would give us fresh insight into just how much you're willing to do for us and how much you care for us. And now we pray the prayer our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever.